Please open in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians 10. If you stand, I'll be reading verses 1 through 14, 1 Corinthians 10 verses 1 through 14 as we really look at one of the most solemn warnings in all of the Bible to believers. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Please be seated. Now, there are about 4.65 billion social media users on the planet. Facebook has 2.9 billion, YouTube 2.2 billion, WhatsApp 2 billion, Instagram 2 billion, TikTok 1 billion, Snapchat 538 million, Pinterest, 444 million. I don't know who counts these things. Reddit, 430 million. LinkedIn, 250 million. And I guess fading fast, Twitter, uh, now known as X, I guess, 217 million. Now, as we've talked about before, there are benefits to social media, benefits of staying engaged with people around the world and even being able to proclaim the gospel. But if we're not careful, these billions of social media accounts add up to thousands of opportunities each week for distraction anxiety, anger, and fear. The events and difficulties of the world at the best of times threaten to overwhelm us if we are not careful. We need to more thoroughly and consistently look into the Word of God to be reminded of and glory in the greatness of God's character and His mighty power to save. You don't need to read your Bible to check off a box on your spiritual disciplines list. You need to read, study, memorize, and meditate on the Bible so that you delight in God and that you don't get overwhelmed by the world. So what we'll see this morning is that the Word of God powerfully describes God's faithful guidance, protection, and deliverance of His people so that we would fear His name, thus fleeing from idolatry and faithfully serving the living and true God. The Word of God powerfully describes God's faithful guidance, protection, and deliverance of His people so that we would fear His name thus fleeing from idolatry and faithfully serving the living and true God. Immersion in God's word protects us from idolatry. Now, chapter 10, Paul is really kind of turning a final corner home in his discussion on idolatry. And he began by talking about eating meat sacrificed to idols and eating meat in idol temples and worked his way through his own personal example of apostolic authority, but also apostolic humility, giving up the very freedoms that he had to be a slave to all men so that he might win as many as the Lord would have for him. In chapter 9, he was, we worked our way through his explanation of his slavery. He says, I'm free from all men, but I willingly make myself a slave to all so that the maximum amount of people will be saved. We talked about his pursuit of slavery. Paul said, to the Jews I become as a Jew, to the weak as weak. 
so that I might by all means win some. And then he talked about his dedication to that slavery that he desired to become all things to all men, always remaining underneath the truth and principles of the word of God and the law of God and Christ and yet always being willing to give up any personal preference so that he might be able to win more for Christ. And then he really broadens it out by saying, I do everything, everything for the sake of the gospel. And that's our calling. It's not just apostles that are called to that. They're they're called to teach us that. They're called to write that down and tell us to do it. And that's what we're called to do. We do all things for the sake of the gospel. And then it's 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 as though he's answering a question. How in the world can that be done? Because I think that's what oftentimes we sit here and ask. The world's overwhelming. It's all these things that I have to do and I have to feed my family and I have to work through political issues and economic ones and all these things that are happening. How can I possibly do all things for the sake of the gospel? Only one way. Spiritual discipline. Self-control. We will have to use the power, the infinite power of the Spirit of God that has been given to us along with the principles of the Word of God provided to us through an exercise of spiritual self-control that we might run to win. That's it. And winning is doing all things for the sake of the gospel. It's the only way you're running to win. Yes, we have our careers, and yes, we have our families, and yes, we enjoy the good things the Lord has given, but all of that is with one purpose, to run to win, that we might honor our Lord, and receive the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul says, look, I run to win, exercise self-control in all things, and I discipline my body, and I make it my slave so that I am not disqualified, so that I would not somehow blow out at the end of all of that and come underneath uh, the disciplining hand of God, which is what I think that means. I don't think Paul is saying in the end of chapter 9 and verse 27 where he says that I myself might not be disqualified. I don't think he's talking about losing his salvation. I don't think he's talking about not making it to heaven. I think he's talking about he could do all those things, and yet if he were to fail to exercise self-control, it might be that he himself would come underneath the disciplining hand of God that might remove him even from ministry and even unto death. Because immediately he now transitions into chapter 10 where he says, four. We'll talk about that in a minute. Right? There's a, there, there are no chapter breaks, remember? One smooth manuscript in the Greek. There's not even punctuation marks. He's working your way through context to know what's coming next. The little words like for and 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 but and or all tell us what's coming. So Paul's moving immediately into another part of his argument, reflecting on what he just said. You're going to have to exercise self-control if you are going to flee from idolatry, ultimately. If you're going to be a slave to all men, doing everything for the sake of the gospel. And of course, that is what it means, right, also to flee from idolatry, is that you are a slave to God, therefore a slave to all men, therefore doing all things for the sake of the gospel, not serving false idols, distracted by nothing, but the one true God that drives and directs all of your attention. So now, Paul will move towards his condemnation of the idolatry that the Corinthians seem to be involved in, or at least working their way back towards as they are seemingly condoning dining in these idol temples. So he's going to continue to discuss the danger of ignoring the precedent set, even by Old Testament Israel, of those who walked back into idolatry even after after they had received the fullness of God's blessings. Now, Really, this verses 1 through 23, I only read verses 1 through 14, but 1 through 23 form one long argument, right? And, and really even past that as Paul transitions back to the things you can do. Here in verses 1 through 23, saying these are things you cannot do, right? You may not exercise your liberty in these ways, and he's giving some examples of that. And yet there's a ton of things here that I would want to take the time to work our way through, right? I don't want us to lose the forest for the trees, but we've got some really tall trees that we need to work on, things like baptized into Moses, spiritual food and drink. The rock that follows them is Christ. The idea that, that he's talking about the nation of Israel and yet he is clearly directly applying moral lessons from Israel to the church. How's he doing this? 
People dying, being decimated in the wilderness. How does that apply to us? Well, he's directly applying it to Christians. To Christians. Not unbelievers, but to believers. Through Israel, how, how does he do this? We have to work our way through it because there's much discussion on these issues. You discussed this late at night in your Snapchat and your Twitter and all those things I just mentioned. You discussed it in college group, you know, uh, ad infinitum perhaps. So we're going to work our way through how it is we understand these things well, but so we don't lose the forest for the trees, I'd like to just give you a summary statement on an overview of 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 23. Then we're going to dive into looking at the trees. We're going to cut some trees down as we try to get through it. Well, we're going to walk amongst the trees and observe them as we get through our forest. But here's an overview of these next 23 verses, which will take us multiple weeks to get our way through. All Israel experienced God's blessing, deliverance, and provision under Moses' leadership as evidenced by God leading them in the pillar of cloud, delivering them, delivering them through the Red Sea, and providing them food and drink in the wilderness. Most Israelites, in their ignorance, took God's provision for granted and became idolatrous, immoral, rebellious grumblers, sparking God's jealous displeasure and reaping the terrible result of God's discipline. All the Corinthians had received God's blessing, deliverance, and provision under Christ's leadership, as evidenced externally by their baptism, indicating union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and by the regular partaking of the Lord's Supper, signifying their receiving the benefits of Christ, paying their penalty, taking God's wrath, and clothing them with his righteousness. All the Corinthians, therefore, should consider, as an example, the fate of the Israelites, whose solidarity with God through Moses did not keep them from being slaughtered in the wilderness when they pursued idolatry and immorality. Some of the Corinthians, in their arrogance, were in danger of presuming that the benefits they had received in Christ meant that they could pursue participation in demonic worship services while also partaking of the Lord's Supper and somehow not provoke God's jealousy and fall under his discipline. Sobering indeed, and yet directly applicable to us because these were written to the church. We are the church. We are a congregation, and these apply straight across the board, as we will see, to where we are today. We don't need to cross very many hermeneutical bridges. In fact, Paul crosses all of them for us, going all the way from the Old Testament here into the New, under the New Covenant, and all the way to today. And we're going to follow that bridge and walk our way through to the sobering statement that as an historical religion with a real God under whose benefits and blessings we have come, we must abstain from idolatry or suffer the consequences. It's a real truth. David Garland says, these are perhaps the most chilling warnings in all of Scripture when it comes to the reality of who we need to be as Christians. The example of the fathers, he says, the example of the father's horrifying end highlights the peril in which the Corinthians placed themselves by consorting with idols. Violating their covenant obligations and putting the Lord to the test is suicidal. And all of those words are meaningful. Again, Garland says, the bold Corinthians may not fear the power of idols, but they should fear the wrath of God. Now this morning, we will, not, we will only cover the first five verses. In fact, we will only cover verse one. As we try to wrap our minds, this was written long ago, like last night. Uh, so we'll cover verse 1 to try to wrap our minds around what Paul means when he talks about Israel being baptized into Moses. Actually, we're just going to wrap our minds around what it means to be under the cloud and passing through the sea. That's as far as we'll get. The main point of the passage, however, let's not lose this, is crystal clear. Israel is an example of what not to do. Do not become idolaters after having received the blessings and benefits of God or you will pay. That's the crystal clear message all the way through. We won't forget that. 
But we work our way through because it's really important to understand how we use our Bibles to take the proper warnings, how we use our Bibles to properly understand how we can avoid God's discipline and bring him pleasure by participating fully in his blessings. This matters because Christians tend to view their Bibles and Bible reading as somewhat you know, somewhat lackadaisical manner. We all complain about how we aren't doing enough of it, but then we read and we're like, well, that's boring, or I don't understand that, or what's that about? We need to know what that's about. We need to understand why we're reading, and we need to read properly with the right eyes towards what God is speaking to us. This is vital so that we will properly use the scriptures, understand their meaning, so that we can honor and please the Lord. So we'll begin this morning by looking at Israel's example of arrogant idolatry in the face of tremendous spiritual blessing. This is very important. Paul talks about their blessings. That's what he begins with, this idea of being baptized into Moses and being under the cloud and in the sea and having spiritual food and drink. He emphasizes their blessings. Why? Because it emphasizes the folly of their pursuit of a false god. To turn away from the God who provides them with all these blessings is lunacy, Literally, it's, it's a, only a lunatic would do so, and it also is deadly dangerous. So Paul emphasizes their blessings, and this is important for us. You won't run from idolatry if you think the world is great. You won't run from, run from idolatry and think, oh, the blessings I've got in this world are just what I need. I've got food, I've got clothing, I've got a good family, at least, you know, it's getting better. I'm, I'm trying to do my best with it. I've got an okay career, I can quit jobs and go here. You know, things are okay, it's not North Korea. I'm doing all right. Well, if that's the way you view life, then you are going, I mean, you are in idolatry. You are serving those idols. Only when we recognize the blessings and benefits of God will we turn away from idolatry to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So let's begin looking. Really, we'll see there's two blessings over the next two weeks, the blessing of being baptized into Moses and the blessing of being nourished by Christ. We'll just look at, we'll be, look at the first part of the first blessing this morning. So onto your outline, the blessing of being baptized into Moses. And of course, we have to deal with that first word, which I alluded to, for. So back in your text, chapter 10, verse 1, for I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. What is the for there for? It is to remind us of what just happened. And Paul says, look, you need to exercise self-control If you don't, even someone such as I, who have faithfully proclaimed the gospel, if I were to not exercise self-control, I might be disqualified. And oh, now I'm going to give you an example of other people who were disqualified. Some other people who did not exercise self-control. So wake up, Corinthians. You need to see an example of those who had the blessings and benefits of God, did not exercise self-control against idolatry, ended up in it, and suffered the consequences. They were, as as it were, disqualified. They were eliminated from the race. Not, for the New Testament example, not by somehow losing salvation or coming out from underneath being a child of God, but by by literal death and literal pain and literal suffering that Israel faced and that Paul is saying the Corinthians will face if they follow in the same vein. So the four is pretty important. Yes, you must exercise self-control or you might end up like these. And then he immediately, of course, moves back to where the Old Testament, which to them was not the Old Testament. It was the Testament. It wasn't, there wasn't a New Testament. We call it old because we have a new. Right? They had the Old Testament as their Christian scriptures, as their scriptures, and then the New Testament was being written. First Corinthians is written pretty early. Right? They didn't have a lot before then. Maybe some copies of the Gospels. 
right? But they were looking at the Old Testament scriptures and needed them, and as we need them today, to give us examples, to show us the pattern and picture of who God is and how he deals with chosen people. This is really important. How does God deal with those whom he has chosen, whom he has set apart to be his people? So he says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. This is Paul's shepherd's heart. I, I don't want you to somehow miss something. I don't want you to miss, most specifically in our text, Paul says, I don't want you to miss the importance of those Old Testament illustrations for you, real historical narratives from which you are to draw real spiritual principles that apply to you today. I don't want you to be unaware. I mean, what shepherd would not warn his people of the dangers of idolatry, of the fact that they might come underneath God's disciplining hand, that they might be sick, that they might sleep, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, if they misuse and abuse the fellowship of the table of God, the fellowship of communion by also serving idols. What shepherd would not warn his people? But there are so many who will not. Things like unhook from the Old Testament and we don't need you know, to know about God there and you know, what we move forward and what we understand and the Spirit moves. We need the Bible. We need all of it. We need the instructions and warnings that it brings and any good shepherd will bring that to his people. I would say the same to you this morning. I don't want you to be unaware. Why? Because it impacts your life physically, spiritually, physically, today and tomorrow. It impacts this church. It impacts this world. You have to know these warnings. And it is a false shepherd who refuses to bring the weightiness of the warnings of the word of God to bear. Now, again, who also refuses to talk about its blessings and the tremendous benefits of knowing Christ, we would be foolish unworthy shepherds if we do not say the same as Paul. I don't want you to be unaware. Notice what, is he, what he calls them, brethren. I do want to remind you that he's talking to Christians. He's assuming right, that those in Corinth are in the family of God. Of course, it's almost certain that not everyone in that congregation was. But you need to understand that this passage is written to Christians, not those who are unbelievers, or even necessarily who might be unbelievers. There are warnings underneath for those who think they're Christians and aren't, that they will never, they've never been under God's blessing. But the warnings here are for those who are under God's blessing, who are actually, in Paul's case, in Christ, and who were actually in the Old Testament in Israel, underneath the blessing and benefit of God as his chosen people. He says, look, I don't want you to be unaware. He brings this important issue to bear. And remember, he's talking to a Gentile audience largely, most likely. Certainly there were Jewish Christians in Corinth. But there were a lot of Gentile believers and a lot of new believers, some of whom may not have known their Bibles, as it were. In fact, probably many of them who did not, who hadn't studied the Old Testament scriptures in depth and didn't know some of these illustrations, things that you learned in Sunday school. Basically, what you're going to get over the next three weeks is a big Sunday school lesson. All those stories, historical narratives you heard in Sunday school, which now are, are somehow in our, our theological arrogance, we've got to move by this. We don't do Bible stories. We don't do moral lessons. Really? Paul did. We're going to see some really strong moral lessons being brought to bear from the Old Testament. Let's not forget that. It's not the only thing we do in Sunday school. It can't be unhooked from the nature of Christ and the work of God and the way he works in the heart. But it can't be dumbed down either. None of those things matter because it's all about Christ. It is about Christ. But everything people do matters in light of Christ. Old Testament, New Testament, all of it. You need to know, as it were, the fate of your father. So now let's go there. We're not even on the outline yet, but 
we, well, we did a little bit. So this is the blessings of being baptized into Moses. And the first blessing we will see is that God led the people through Moses. But before we even get there, we have to figure out, well, why does this matter to us? He's going to talk about Moses and being baptized and rocks and spiritual food and clouds. You're like, that all happened in the Old Testament. We're the New Testament church. We're not Israel. Either we've replaced Israel or Israel doesn't exist or some other form of it. We're totally separate. Well, none of those things are true. We're not totally separate. We haven't fulfilled Israel. We haven't replaced Israel. We walk in the line of the spiritual blessings, benefits, and warnings that Israel had. And we need to understand this well because Paul says here, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers, he's not talking about physical lineage here because they weren't Jews, most of them. He's including everybody. He is talking to the church, Jews and Gentiles, certainly, but many of whom, perhaps most of whom, did not have a physical lineage back to Israel. So it is not physical descendancy, not physical lineage he's talking about here when he says, our fathers. He's a Jew, but he is including all of them, the entire church, not his Jewish team, not the Jews in the congregation, all of the congregation is linked to Israel, the fathers, because we know very clearly that he's talking about the nation of Israel itself, physical, ethnic Jews, God's physical chosen people, and yet he calls them our fathers. There is a direct link to us through Israel as the people of God. So as, he, as, as God leads the people through Moses, his ethnic chosen people, there are illustrations and direct applications to us because those are your fathers. That song you used to sing, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, and if you were in my youth group, you did all the crazy motions. I'm one of them, and so are you, and you, and you, and you. That's true. Abraham is your father. And we must never forget that reality. In fact, this is laid out for us even at the beginning, the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, when God makes the promise to Abraham. And the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And then Genesis 15, as he reiterates this, to all the nations. In this first covenantal discussion with Abraham, he says, yeah, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make you a nation, and through you and your nation, I'm going to bless the entire world. I'm going to bless all the other nations. Well, we are the beneficiaries of that. It was promised from the very beginning. It simply was that we did not understand how that would work itself out. The mystery is not that Gentiles would be included, not that the nations would be blessed through Christ and through the ethnic, physical descendants of the Jews. It was just how that would happen. That was a mystery. How would the Messiah do this? How would this transcend? How would what the Messiah does transcend the physical barrier of ethnicity? Well, we know the mystery, don't we? That in Christ, we are baptized into the body of Christ through the work of the Spirit of God, and we all enter into one family, which includes the spiritual lineage of those who came before us, which includes Israel. So this is made clear to us, this Abrahamic covenant that all the nations would be blessed through the coming Messiah that would come through the nation that Abraham would start, the ethnic people of God, the Jews, that we would receive benefit from that as Abraham's spiritual descendants, Galatians 3.14. In order that in Christ, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, that Abrahamic covenant, Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3, Genesis 15, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we, 
and now Paul viewing himself as a member of the church, we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Genesis 3.20, Galatians 3.29. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants and heirs according to the promise. We are heirs of Abraham. We are his sons spiritually. There are physical sons. There are spiritual sons. Both exist, and we are the spiritual ones. It doesn't make us any less a part of the people of God. We are full-fledged members, but it also doesn't make the physical descendants any less a part of God's people either. And here's where the rub is. It's important to remember that we don't just show up on the scene as the New Testament church all ready to rush out on our own as if the Old Testament didn't exist. Thanks, Israel, for the spiritual blessings. We'll take it from here. We don't need you anymore. You're all done. No, it doesn't in any way mean that the church has replaced or fulfilled national Israel as though because the church exists as spiritual descendants of Abraham, that God no longer has any purposes for the physical descendants of Abraham. This does not logically follow, and it does not scripturally follow. Spiritual descendants are wonderful. Physical descendants still exist. One does not cancel the other because scripture says so. We're going to weave our way through your theological systems over these next three weeks. Right, to try to determine what do the scriptures say about the continuity and discontinuity that, uh, that is involved between Israel and the church and what we're doing now. We've got to follow what the Bible says. There's great, we need to have theological systems. Some are better than others. We're going to have to weave our way biblically to see what God says about this and how Paul uses an understanding of who Israel is and who the church is to make his point. So, so this isn't a minor issue. Because someone even questioned the validity of using Old Testament Israel as some kind of example for us. Paul has to have a hermeneutic which allows that because that is what he does. And yet, he must also have a hermeneutic which keeps him from totally erasing the physical descendants because we know from Romans chapter 11 that Paul says this. Some of the branches, if some of the branches, physical Jews, the lineage of, of Israel, if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and become partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, the promises granted to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that they would be a nation that would bless the world, do not become arrogant towards the branches. Don't Gentiles also going to go, we're here, look at us. You physical descendants, step to the side. The church is here. Paul says, watch out. Do not become arrogant. You're a wild branch. You got grafted in. It's not your tree. <laughs> You're a branch. You don't get to claim the tree. Because if you're arrogant, remember, it's not you who support the root. The root supports you. So whatever theology you have, you have to weave your way through that and work your way around what the Bible actually says about the nature of physical Israel in the church. And it ties them tightly together in some ways and has discontinuity between them in other ways. David Garland says this, Paul's use of Israel's story is crucial to his case. The God with whom we have to do, he insists, is not merely some abstract divine principle that sets us free from polytheistic superstition. The God whom we ha with whom we have to do is the God of Israel, a jealous God who sternly condemns idol worship and punishes all who dare to dabble in it. Do not dismiss the God of Israel, his ethnic chosen people. Well, let's look now to the blessings that God provided to Israel, which is my, supposed to be my whole point here. Right? As we're working our way there. It's Paul's point. What's the first blessing? Well, all of the Old Testament Israelites started, really the nation began with the great blessing of God leading them. 
He directed them and guided them. He gathered them together as his nation, brought them under his wings, as it were, and carefully shepherded them with the, Paul here using the illustration of, the, the, uh, the picture of their being under the cloud and passing through the sea. So back in your text. Don't, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that all, our, all of our fathers, were, they, our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And you're like, under the cloud? I mean, they were depressed? What, what are you talking about? No. And, and probably, again, in your mind, right, as good Bible scholars, you're immediately thinking, okay, cloud, I can get some reference there. That's probably the cloud that was leading and guiding them, right, when they were in the wilderness. Okay, passed through the sea, not too hard. I went to Sunday school. So that means that they, you know, that was when they went through the Red Sea. But how is that going to relate to us, and what in the world does that have to do with them being baptized into Moses, and how does that blessing relate to our blessings? Because we're the church, and we have Christ, and we are not in Moses. So how is this going to work its way out? Well, I'm glad you asked, because that's what we're going to talk about. So he says here that you have this blessing. The cloud was used by God to lead and protect the people of God as a real demonstration of their being his nation. He was identifying them as his nation by protecting them and guarding them, and he was doing that through a man whom he raised up, Moses. That would be his emissary, as it were, who was leading the people. The people worked through or went through Moses, as it were, to get to God. God directed the people through Moses. So he is their leader, their emissary, the one with whom they identify as God builds them as a nation, and their tremendous blessing was that they, above all and different from all the other nations on the earth at that time, were being guided in the wilderness by this cloud, the presence of God to protect them and to guide them, to guard them. This was unique, and this was a tremendous blessing that, as we will see, they took advantage of. They did not appreciate. And yet, this being under the cloud was the greatest of blessings to them. And again, The problem here, though, is you're thinking under the cloud. Now, wait a minute. It's the wrong metaphor. How about behind the cloud? Or the cloud was in front of them. Well, I mean, all of that is true because Paul is certainly referring to Exodus 13. So go ahead and turn there. We're going to do a bit of Old Testament work. Keep your finger or keep your one of your bulletin inserts, one of your mini bulletin inserts uh, in 1 Corinthians 11. But go to Exodus and we'll do our Sunday school lesson. Exodus 23, or excuse me, Exodus 13. So you want to know what the cloud is? Well, here it is. 13.21 says, The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from before his people. So a cloud is leading them, but it's like, what about being under this cloud? Well, before we get to that, also understand that the cloud didn't just lead them, it did what? It protected them. Right, this cloud, Exodus 14.24 or 14.19, if you want to just go there, just look to the next verses, Exodus 14.19. It says, the angel of God who had been going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. Now, if you mark in your Bible, mark angel of God. That's not for this morning, right, but we will talk about it later as we consider the nature of Christ's blessings and being with his people. The angel of God was in the cloud. Apparently, it was the one directing the cloud around whom the cloud was, all right? So, the angel and the cloud moved behind them to protect them because the Egyptians are coming with their full army, and you have this ragtag band, about two million people, remember, men and women and children, who come out of the land of Egypt with all their stuff, and here comes the Egyptians, and this cloud takes care of them. But also, there is a sense, the scriptures reveal to us, that the cloud was over them. 
The idea is that there was this protection and guidance that were for all of them. Not just one of them or two, but everybody. So that's the idea. They were under all of them, this guidance. But there's also even a physical aspect to this, Exodus 14, 24. So just glance your eyes down a little further. At the morning watch, the Lord looked down. Isn't this fascinating? That's Yahweh. The angel of the Lord, the Lord in this cloud. We'll have to sort that out probably in the next three weeks. The Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians from the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. That's fascinating. He's looking down. He's over them. He's looking down from the cloud. This is real. And then Psalm 105.39, he spread a cloud for a covering. As, as we will see, these incidents are used throughout the Bible as benchmarks for God's goodness and his blessing, the cloud and the sea. Paul is picking the most consistent incidents used to demonstrate the character of God and his blessings to his people. He's, he's going to be alluding to them here. The pillar of cloud, by the way, stayed with them. Now turn to Numbers chapter 9. So remember that when they came out of Egypt and when he says our fathers were all under the cloud, passed through the sea, he's really referring to that entire time when they were wandering in the wilderness after they'd come out of Egypt. Why? Because they are established as a nation during that time and then they ultimately move their way to the place where they're about to enter the promised land, but they don't immediately do so because of these very warnings that he's about to give. So all during this time, remember, it was about two years for them to come out of Egypt through the sea, led by the cloud, to Mount Sinai, and to get God's law there. All right, a couple of months to get to Mount Sinai, a year and some months there, and then wandering in the wilderness for 38 years. So he's referring to that 40-year period with this under the cloud and pass through the sea. And during that entire time, the cloud was with them. It didn't just show up a couple of times. All right, Numbers 9... Uh, 15. It says, Now on the day that the tabernacle was erected, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony, and in the evening it was like the appearance of fire over the tabernacle until morning. So it was continuously. The cloud would cover it by day, the appearance of fire by night. Whenever the cloud was lifted from over the tent, afterward the sons of Israel would then set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the sons of Israel would camp. At the command of the Lord, the sons of Israel would set out. At the command of the Lord, this is Yahweh, they would camp. As long as the cloud settled over the tabernacle, they remained camped. Even when the cloud lingered over the tabernacle for many days, the sons of Israel would keep the Lord's charge and not set out. If sometimes the cloud remained a few days over the tabernacle, remain, according to the command of the Lord, they remained camped. Then according to the command of the Lord, they set out. Are we getting the point here? But goes on. If sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning, when the cloud was lifted in the morning, they would move out. Or if it remained in the daytime and at night, whenever the cloud was lifted, they would set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a year that the cloud lingered over the tabernacle, staying above it, the sons of Israel remained camped. They did not set out, but when it was lifted, they did set out. So we see that there's much more going on all during the time they were in the wilderness. All right, this cloud is there and not always in front or behind them, but oftentimes over the tabernacle. All right, so just every incident is say, oh, there's the cloud. We're just getting the bigger picture here. But then, don't miss verse 23. At the command of the Lord, they camped. At the command of the Lord, they set out, right? So God is directing them, guiding them, protecting them. They kept the Lord's charge, underline this, according to the command of the Lord through Moses. That's what Paul is going to be alluding to here. Moses was their leader. He was the one who represented them to the Lord, and they were constituted as a nation under Moses' leadership. And that's true. That's seen throughout the Bible. When you move into the New Testament, the Pharisees say what? We're disciples of Moses. They don't say David. Why? Because Moses was the one who established them, as it were, as a nation. God used him to do that. That's important. This idea of being identified with him because he is representing God. And so, he is the one that God uses and they obey him. Now, 
as I said, many Old Testament passages highlight God's provision in this cloud. Deuteronomy 1.32. But for all this, you do not trust the Lord your God who goes before you on your way to seek out a place for you to encamp. Isn't that fascinating? He goes before, he's looking for the best spot in fire by night and cloud by day to show you the way you should go. Nehemiah 9. You and your great compassion, this is Nehemiah crying out to the Lord. You and your great compassion did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. Psalm 78, 14. Then he led them with the cloud by the day and all night with the light of fire. God was graciously leading and guiding them. This was a tremendous blessing. No other nation ever had this and they threw it away as it were, as we will see. They totally disregarded that benefit of God's special attention to guide them. And when was the last time you read the narrative about the cloud and the sea and fell on your knees thanking God for his incredible guidance and care for his people? It probably was a while ago, but you ought to, and that's what this is all about. You need to read your Old Testament with better eyes. You need to read it with greater look, greater looking to the greatness and the glory of the God who provides for his people and provides for his people today. So this is, Mo, this is Paul's point. Israel had all these things, and he's going to point out, and oh, by the way, by application, by implication, you Corinthians have everything, and you too are about to throw it away. But how quickly do we look past this? Do stop reading your Bible to check off a box. Stop going, well, I don't understand that, and I didn't get that verse, and that didn't mean anything to me. It ought to. God is, in all the things he's doing in the Old Testament, some passages e- easier to read than others. I understand that. In all of that, you study and meditate on the greatness of God to provide, protect, deliver the people in that text, not necessarily pass that to you yet, appreciating that and then appreciating you. You don't run from the text immediately to you. You delight in what God did for his people then because you are connected to them. Don't overlook them as you read and make sure you read. I hear it all the time. I can't read Old New Testament. I don't have time. I got to study. Really? You've got to study. I mean, you ought to know these things, but you, you need to go and understand that when you're reading that broad overview, you need to understand what it is. You need to continually be pouring into the Old Testament to see what God has done and to see who he is, and you're going to have to have time. You are going to have to make the time. I want to study little passages. Great. So you're going to have to make the time to read big ones and study little ones. I don't have enough time. You have to. You have to, or you might fall under the same judgment as Israel did. You might come under the disciplining hand of God as an idolater. You don't have any choice. You have to know what Paul knows. And you have to know that by reading your Bible. Old and new. Well, God delivered the people through Moses. He led the people through Moses. The other blessing of this being under the cloud and through the sea is that they were delivered because the the picture of the cloud, the reality of the cloud is the protection and guidance, and guarding of God. But the reality of the sea, passing through the sea, is what? God's deliverance. Everywhere in Scripture, we see that going through the Red Sea is a picture of the mighty hand of God to save. It was a physical salvation, sure. A real physical salvation, which is then used to help us to realize that God really saves both physically and spiritually. Again, he does not always deliver from the physical circumstance, but he's one who's taking you through it and then always brings his deliverance to his people. This is what the Red Sea is used for over and over, and it was Moses who led them through it. This is all building to verse 2, where it says they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. That's for next week. 
but this is just the blessing of going through the sea, is that God delivered them from their enemies. He is the great deliverer. Have you forgotten it? Are you afraid of your political situation? Are you afraid of other nations? Israel was. God delivered them from a real nation. Doesn't mean he's going to zap you out of the United States or make the political situation better, but he is not cowed by it. He delivers. You will not be left to the whims of those nations because God will guard you and direct you in the midst of their folly and foolishness. You've got to remember that. God delivers. He's a deliverer. And he took them through the sea and he did it through a faithful man. Enough of this, you know, the patriarchs were worthless and they didn't accomplish what they were supposed to. They were sinners. Moses doesn't even get to go into the land. This is a little bit for next week. Moses was faithful. Hebrews says he was. He was faithful in all his house to lead his people despite his flaws, despite his failures. Jesus didn't come to replace Moses. Jesus came on the basis of Moses' work. That's how that works. Certainly Jesus is the better Moses, but Moses was never meant to be Jesus. He was meant to be Moses, and he was and the people were baptized into him. They, they were identified with him by the work of God through his faithful leadership, and it brought about their great deliverance. No Moses, now God would have raised someone, we understand this, but no Moses, no Red Sea. The people see Egypt coming, they flee into the wilderness, probably clawing their way past the cloud because it had moved behind them. They run off and are destroyed. Moses says, stand, after God tells him to stand. He raises up his staff, and the sea parts. Did he part it? No. God did, but Moses led, and the people followed because they were obeying God. Exodus 14. So you are back. So if you were in Numbers, you hadn't moved back to Corinthians yet. Go to Exodus 14. I don't think I'm hearing any pages. Are you guys swiping in your Bibles, maybe? I don't know. We must not do this enough. Maybe wrinkle it for me so I can hear. Thank you. All right, Exodus 14. Somebody did. Exodus 14, 19. Oh, that was so much better. The angel of God who had been going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. We read this. The pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. There was a cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. Then, verse 21, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, so the waters were divided. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on dry land. The waters were like a wall to them on the right and on the left. Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit and all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea after them. And you know what happens. Israel is delivered through the sea. By the way, without getting a single drop, a pretty dry baptism. We'll talk about that next week. No water. All right, they walk through it. They don't get wet by it. They're identified with Moses in it as they're identified with God. And yet, who gets the baptism in that sense? Pharaoh. He gets the water. He gets the destruction. I'm not making any spiritual point there. I'm just simply showing the reality of what was happening in the water there. Israel walked through on dry land. And this deliverance is used in the rest of the Old Testament as a direct testimony to God's faithfulness to deliver his people. Nehemiah 9.11 you divided the sea before them, so they passed through the midst of the sea on dry ground. Their pursuers you hurled into the depths like a stone into raging waters. What, what a metaphor. Psalm 66, 6, he turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot, therefore let us rejoice in him. Turn to Psalm 77, you can't miss this. It's so sweet. So Psalm 77, 
as we get really a personification of the Red Sea. Psalm 77, beginning in verse 16. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you. They were in anguish. The deeps trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth a sound. Your arrows flashed here and there. The sound of your thunder was in the world when the lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea and your paths in the mighty waters and your footprints may not be known. What, what, what incident are we talking about? You led your people like a flock by the hands of Moses and Aaron. What a picture. The sea prepares in trembling for God to part it. And then he leads them through like a shepherd under the hand of their shepherds, Moses and Aaron. What a thought. This is who God is. He is the delivering God who delivers his people by his mighty power according to the men whom he, he, whom he has raised up in whatever era of time, dispensation of time that we may be. Psalm 136, 13, to him who divided the sea asunder for his loving kindness is everlasting. Made Israel pass through the midst of it for his loving kindness is everlasting. But he overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea for his loving kindness is everlasting. We need to remember this. Paul's bringing to bear the testimony of the goodness of God towards his ethnic chosen people to remind his spiritually chosen people that God is a deliverer, that God is a protector, that God is a guider, and they must be very careful that they do not shove those benefits aside, that they do not nullify those blessings by seeking another God like Israel did. So really, the, the challenge for this morning is this. These examples of physical deliverance point to the nature of God, how he cares for his people. Will you read your Bible a little bit more carefully this week? Will you dive back into your Sunday school stories, as it were, to see the greatness of the power of God as a deliverer, to see what he did for his people, to be reminded of how he cares for them and what he provided for them, even under, as it were, the Old Testament dispensation, how great and how powerful and how mighty and how caring and how loving he was. And will you then see that beautiful picture and stop fearing and stop being angry and stop being anxious because of what God has done. The Old Testament points you directly then to certainly the work of Christ. He is a greater, the greater Moses because he finishes the work that Moses started. He does come to deliver us in an even greater way. And yet, and yet, the, the greatness of the deliverance pictured in the Old Testament is, is to remind us that this is who God is. And as you do that, might you turn from your idols, your things that you are trusting in to give you comfort and to give you hope and to give you peace and turn back to the great God who took his chosen ethnic people thousands of years ago under the cloud and through the sea through a faithful man to deliver them for his purposes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the joy of knowing you. Thank you for the truths of your word that guide us and direct us, that comfort us and encourage us, but also that warn us or might we not take your mighty hand for granted? Might we not take the greatness of your salvation as though it is something that we have deserved and that we would then turn away to other things, to idols that compete in our hearts and minds for your attention, a demonic kind of attention. And might instead we be captivated by your power, by your, by your grace, by your deliverance, by your protection and by your guidance. In your precious name, amen.